Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. You're listening to Text Message, the UK-focused technology podcast with me, Nate Langson. And me, Ian Morris. And thank you to the basically several hundred of you who have completed our December survey so far. Absolutely incredible response. Massively grateful. Um, To be honest with you, wasn't expecting so many responses so quickly. Um, We've mentioned it on one show once and not promoted it anywhere else. So to have so many of you uh, in the triple figures giving us really valuable feedback is fantastic. So if you're listening to this and haven't heard what this survey is, we are running an end-of-year listener survey to try and get some really useful feedback about how you're listening to the show, why you're listening to the show. Um, It's the only thing that helps us shape how we may want to change the show next year if at all a lot of you seem pretty happy with it as it is so that's reassuring but there's a link in the mp3 description for this episode if you if you take a look at that hopefully in most podcatchers you should be able to click that it'll take you about 60 seconds max or go to our website which is at natelangson.com slash podcast or techpodcast.uk you can find it there and there'll be a link at the top of each of the the last couple of shows there to, to click through to the google form and thank you in advance to anyone who can do that it is massively helpful we've also been trialing using twitter as a place to collate all the stories that we may want to talk about at the weekend when Ian and I sit down to record. So at text message pod is the place to go for any midweek urges to read UK focused news. It's kind of a, a, an aggregate of everything that's going on in, in UK specific tech um, that we post to every week. And that's actually what we build the show notes from every weekend now. So you can see everything we might talk about. And maybe that'll help you uh, come up with an idea of something to suggest to us. Yeah, and we and we both uh, pay attention to that feed, don't we? So um, it's a really good way of getting our attention if you, uh, if you don't want to talk to us directly or for whatever reason you don't know where we are on Twitter individually. It's a good way to get hold of us. Yeah, so that's at text message pod. Uh, there's a link to that in the show notes as well. And consider that your new source for midweek UK-focused tech news. And on that note, let's get on with this week's UK-focused tech news. We're starting with the BBC iPlayer. Common topic for us, Ian. Um, it's going <laughs> to start showing Planet Earth 2, the nature documentary in ultra hd uh, specifically this is ultra hd but it's also got a little bonus to it which we'll come to shortly but essentially for those of you who don't know what ultra hd is this is significantly higher resolution content and sharpness compared to hd uh, or blu-ray it follows kind of in the trend of resolutions that's so far gone standard definition i.e dvd to high definition i.e blu-ray and now ultra hd i.e uh ultra hd blu-ray <laughs> now this is this is exciting in because i mean of all the programs you kind of want to see in in ultra hd aside from maybe sports it, it's got to be documentaries uh yeah i mean uh, especially planet earth because there's so much beautiful detail in those images now that 
even on 1080p, you think, oh, I, I could just, I could eat a little bit more quality here. Um, so it's extremely exciting, really. And I, I, of course, the BBC did this. I seem to remember that at least one of the BBC's nature programmes formed the basis of the eight, of an HD trial on the precursor to iPlayer, which was called Imp. Yes, um, interactive media player. Yeah, and I it never launched under that name, did it? But um, there was a trial of it that I was on, um, and they did do some HD trialing on it. Um, so the BBC has a sort of tradition of this. And if you want a little bit of trivia, I used to go along and hassle them. Before HD launched, uh, when I worked there, I used to go to... Uh, there was this department that was responsible for, you know, the idea of launching HD at some point, and a guy called Andy Quested uh, ran it. And I used to just sort of rock up there or email him and go, so HD, when's that happening then? And he would very patiently explain to me that it isn't as easy as that. Um, but they used to demo stuff like uh, Walking with Dinosaurs, which was never shot in HD, and they used to upscale it, and it looked amazing. So it was, uh, you know, happy times. And if I remember rightly, when Planet Earth was first released, it was actually released on HD DVD. It was, I think. You're right. You've just reminded me of that. Yeah, the good old HD DVD. I now, don't have it anywhere. I'm, I do have an HD DVD player, though. I might see if I can get a copy. Well, this broadcast is very much a test. At the moment, it's only going to be usable for a few minutes of footage and only on Panasonic televisions. And part of the reason for that is that the BBC is trialling something uh, as part of a a new standard, an HDR standard, essentially, that has been developed between the BBC R&D lab lab and the Japanese broadcaster NHK. And this is essentially, what's it called? Hybrid Log Gamma, I think is the official... Hybrid Log Gamma. Yeah. Do you know what this is? Can you explain this briefly? Well, well, like you said, I mean, it's there are lots of different ways of doing um, ultra... Uh, uh, sorry, high, uh, high dynamic range on TVs. Um, and Tell us what an, hybrid- what, a, what an HDR image looks like. Yeah, well, the the idea of HDR is that it, 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 I, I always sort of try and describe it as more naturally matching what you see in the world with your eyes. Your eyes are, are pretty good at compensating for, um, you know, sort of areas that are light and dark. So if you think about looking out of a window in a, in a, in a sort of, you know, normally lit room you you're able to sort of see the detail of outside as well as the detail inside now when you use a camera certain limitations of recording and things like that mean that you generally expose for one or other of those things um, and you can't see the other so if you're shooting inside you look outside and you just see a sort of a white mess now that's a that's a bad example because in tv production what you do to combat that is sort of put some filters over the windows to, to, that you wouldn't notice that would bring the light level down and make it a bit more easy to see out um but the, the hdr gives you a lot of flexibility and there's a lot more to it than that and it, you know it's better it's better contrast in general which just means it looks much nicer um and also it's impossible to ever show anyone you know you can't there is no way until you sit them down in front of two tvs showing hdr and non-hdr um you know people don't appreciate it um, but a lot of it's to do with the fact that our broadcast standards are very, very old and they're based around, um, you know, quite deficient levels of colour that LCD panels have for many years been able to outstrip. Um, and so really HDR's just taking the the advantages of an LCD panel and, you know, using them for once uh, rather than just sort of 
sort of superimposing the old broadcast system onto a new kind of technology. Now, the BBC wrote a blog post about the 4K trial, and they explained that it would go live from now, and there's a list of um, Panasonic TV models that's available in, in Wired's story if you want to have a look um, and see if your model is supported for this trial. And they said that this trial will run until early next year, so we're still quite some time away from being able to, to watch Ultra HD on iPlayer. But I do think that what's quite significant about this is that we're talking about it in the context of the BBC iPlayer, which for anyone who doesn't know is an on-demand catch-up service essentially, um, not dissimilar to Netflix, but for currently showing content. Ad-free, subscription-free, or well, license fee, but let's not go down that rabbit hole um, on this, <laughs> this episode for once. Um, and, you know, this is being talked at as, as a thing that's coming to iPlayer, as opposed to broadcast TV, because it would just be a long, long time before the BBC probably gets to providing a 4k channel at this point so it's it's i think this is just interesting that we're seeing something like the iplayer driving the development of of the next tv standard kind of usurping the traditional tv broadcasting format itself yeah um um also i think it's important to say that um it's it gets kind of difficult with hdr particularly because there are lots of different standards um and that's kind of frustrating but i am assured that HDR is really metadata more than it is anything else. Um, so, uh, you know, although there are lots of competing standards, it's not it's not usually as much of a problem for, say, a Blu-ray to have each of those standards catered for on a disc. It's not like having a whole copy of the program all over again. It is just the selection of metadata that enables the TV to understand the extra dynamic range in the picture. Mm. And as as I'm aware, the R&D project behind the BBC's HDR has actually been in the works for at least two years, because I, I know that the, the project opened in 2014. So this is this has been a long time in development. And so it's it's it seems something that the BBC's you know committed to for future and all being well in 2017, we'll maybe at least get to see some BBC HDR content um, and hopefully the compression won't take away some of that that sparkle which uh, is all too noticeable on a lot of streaming services. It, yeah and I do I do have some problems with this I actually had a conversation with someone about it the other night who uh, who is works at Roku and I said you know look I don't, what one of the things I don't like about streaming services like Netflix and, Am- and Amazon Prime is that um, when I start the thing for an indeterminate amount of time I will see a quite shoddy picture and then it obviously the internet connection is fast enough to eventually buffer in enough to make the picture quality better um and i said what you know why do they do that and he said because you're in the minority of people most people want to press play and it happen immediately uh, and that's the downside is that you're being dis- you're you're out you know your performance is being degraded by the rest of the majority who wants it'd be a great option to have in a menu somewhere that says i'm impatient and i'm a snob well that's not a very difficult option to have it's just like would you like to pre-buffer everything so it takes a little bit longer to play but uh it it lands in 4k rather than starting at 240p and working up through the range of available youtube bit rates until you get actual quality let us know what you think to the idea of iPlayer being HD next, uh, Ultra HD next year. And uh, we'll look forward to reading some of those comments out next week, maybe. Podcast at natelangson.com.
A story that landed in my brain mere moments before we started recording the show, thanks to Ian's timely intervention. <laughs> Samsung Galaxy Note 7 recall. Haven't talked about this for a little while, but we've noticed, say I, Ian, noticed this week, that the US and UK recall processes have taken a little bit of a different spin this last week. In the US... A post appeared on Samsung's website to say that a software update will be released on December 19th that will prevent US Galaxy Note 7 devices from charging at all and, and this is a quote, eliminate their ability to work as mobile devices. Now, I think that's very harsh, given that this is technically still a voluntary recall. It's not really that much voluntary action if you're bricking their device. Um, whereas Samsung in the UK said, uh, from Nate's birthday, uh, they specified the 15th of December, by the way, <laughs> uh, all Galaxy Note 7 devices will receive a new battery software update that will limit the maximum charging capacity to 30%. This software update is designed to further minimize customer risk and reinforce to customers to replace their device through the recall program. So we are still able to use our phones, but for a very limited amount of time, as long as 30% of battery power allows. Whereas in the US, they're just basically saying, these won't charge anymore. We're bricking it. Send them back immediately. How strange. It is odd. Um, although, actually, I also note uh, that Verizon, um, as soon as Samsung said, we're, um, we're not, we're not going to be, uh, we're, we're going to brick all these phones, Verizon said, we're not doing that. We're not going to brick phones. Um, not when people are coming up to the holiday travel season. And I was like, yeah, yeah but we're, we're ages off holiday travel, surely. And nah. um, I, t- I mean, I take the point, but at the same time, I'm, I sort of feel like this is a real danger. It needs to be addressed. If people haven't returned their phones, they need to be made to do it somehow. So, I don't Well, know. you say so, but it's still a voluntary recall program, and I still think that that is key here, voluntary. Yes, but I know at least also... one person who's sitting about 15 feet away from me who was using a Note 7 and was gutted that uh, she wasn't able to use it anymore, hadn't exploded. Yes, I know, but, you, but, but the stories coming out now suggest that it's a design flaw with the phone that led to um the, the recall in the first place and that that changes it slightly doesn't it because it means that it isn't necessarily the battery that was defective and that it, essentially it could be a lot of phones affected um so i i mean i i understand what you're saying but at the same time i sort of feel like it, it's time to and i and actually when i wrote the story i said to people look if you are having problems getting your note returned for whatever reason let me know and i will try and help you and actually someone did get in touch with me and say that their um son is american but he's studying over here and it's an american phone and he cannot get the uk people to uh deal with it so i'm going to try and help them out with that so um there are still some phones left that are stuck in no man's land if you will so there is that issue as well um and these are people who would gladly give the phones back but aren't able to and i guess you know, there are, it's complicated because some of them might be, you know, might have fallen off the back of lorries and stuff like that. So, but there's no problem bricking those, I guess. If you still have a Galaxy Note 7 uh, in the UK, let us know. Why do you still have one? Anonymity guaranteed. Yeah, absolutely. Anonymity, I think you were going for there, Chief. That's what I said. I may have no, had a, I've, I've got a cold. Yes. Well, fortunately, you've got a co-host, so I can, uh, I can fix that for you. Let's take a brief moment to just poke over the uh, over the garden fence, out of our tech garden and into our media garden, because this is significant. Uh, Rupert Murdoch, probably heard of him, he's offered 11 
just over 11 billion pounds to take full control of the satellite broadcaster we all know as Sky. Now, this comes about half a decade after he scrapped original plans amid the home, uh, sorry, amidst the phone hacking scandal. Uh, now, it's worth noting that Murdoch already owns about 40% of Sky, so this is basically a deal to buy the other 60% or so. Uh, and that's actually because in the late 80s, and I didn't remember this until I was doing some research on this, there were two major rival satellite TV companies in the UK. There was Sky Television, which was Murdoch's, and then there was British Satellite Broadcasting. And a couple of years of them competing and had, I think they lost quite a lot of money each, they merged in the early 90s to form British Sky Broadcasting, which is now what we know of as Sky. So I've dropped I, I the thought, name though. Now it was BSB, wasn't it? Even even B, it was BSB, and then it was B Sky B, yeah. and now it's just <laughs> Sky UK. Because I think that because there's a pan-European element to there the is now. Well, there's yeah. Sky UK now owns Sky Deutschland and Sky Italia, so. Mm. Now, I didn't want to let this fly, this slip past us because this, this only uh, seemed to occur on, on Friday. And there's a Guardian write-up that said that this would essentially bring, um, you know, the people behind Fox News with the largest pay TV broadcaster in Britain. And essentially, that means they would have the most powerful media group in the UK. And a lot of people aren't very happy about that over here because... I mean, I think they thought back to the last time Murdoch tried to snag Sky and uh, there was a lot of frowning from politicians in particular because they essentially thought that Murdoch would dominate the British news outlets and Fox owns Fox News, which is not exactly known for its impartiality in the States, whereas Sky News is very much politically neutral and so is a good competitor to the BBC or ITV even as well. Um, So The Guardian had written that both Labour and uh, Lib Democrat uh, politicians had asked the government to intervene in this. Tom Watson, possibly unsurprisingly, came out and said that that this was potentially terrible and must be judged on how much it'll impact the UK news market uh, and, you know, whether this is good for independent uh, journalism. But it's interesting because Sky, unlike, say, Fox in the US, has so many components to it you know it has it's a broadcaster but it's a broadband provider it's a phone service provider it's now a mobile service provider it does 4k tv it does all sorts and i don't know i kind of wanted to throw this over to you in um just for brief discussion about how this might go down if it goes ahead it can't be allowed to go ahead quite simply i don't believe it will be allowed to go ahead it's that it's it it's just not good enough um I, the the problem is, I mean, yes, it will just be too big of a company. I is my particular opinion, and it will be controlled uh, along with several newspapers by Murdoch. And um, you know, I mean, I I I am not Rupert Murdoch's biggest fan, um, and I think he played a huge part in uh, persuading the public to vote a particular way in the referendum. Uh, and I think that he did that because it suited his ends more than it did ours. Um, Additionally, yeah. and, it, and it's worth noting at this point as well that uh, part of the reason for this m- media, uh, this, this potential to have a huge media outlet is because Fox, uh, Murdoch also owns News UK, which uh, it runs the Times and the Sunday Times and the Sun and used to run News of the World, of course, before that imploded. <laughs> you know, very popular papers. Um, and yes. And, um, th- and the last time there was a proposal that he would spin off Sky News. 
um, so that it would become a, I believe, a funded organisation, but it would be managed by its own board or something like that um, to give it some independence from um, the rest of the Murdoch operation. But we all know that the world doesn't work like that. Um, what I find quite interesting about this is that he's decided to do this now when he would have been better off waiting for us to exit the European Union because... Um, Say well, I'll give you one exact reason why that might be down. Because it's a bloody good bargain right now. Well, the, that, the, yeah, the effect that... of the Brexit vote on the pound has made this deal extremely lucrative. Yes, but if potentially, you, if, compared if, to five years ago, a lot better deal. And they've got something like $5 billion sitting around that better to buy something and get this kind of revenue coming in from the likes of a broadband TV service and things with subscription than just advertising. Like That's a fairly good use of funds at well, a time when the pound is crap. It is, but you, do you think the pound is going to get any better when we actually leave the EU? It's going to be even worse. So, so, but aside from economic things, my understanding of this, and it, actually, to be fair, it would probably still be the case um, because of the European holdings of Sky. Um, but doing it now means that he's got to answer the British government, which, let's be honest, won't be a big problem because the British government is largely in his pocket. And uh, but it also means he has to answer to the European uh, Mergers Commission, whatever it's called. If he waits to exit, he may be able to say, "Well, it's a you know, it's a British company." Then we, you know, it's got nothing to do with Europe. Now, whether or not they may say because you broadcast in Europe, that's not the case. I don't know. Uh, Sky broadcasts to Ireland as well as Germany and Italy, so there's three European countries in, directly involved. Um, but I still think it would be easier if he waited for us to sort of formally leave the EU. Um, and I mean, but I still don't believe it will happen. I just don't believe it's right for one man to own that much media in uh, in this country and Europe. I think it has to be stopped. Um, and last time we were kind of lucky because the phone hacking scandal was all the impetus anyone needed to prevent a merger. Uh, we don't have that now and we're all very distracted by Brexit and Donald Trump. Um, so, oh yes, and let's not forget that as well. Fox News is m- mostly responsible for Donald Trump, which deserves punishment in itself. Do you have a strong opinion on this? Let us know, podcast at natelangson.com. Specifically, if you're a Sky customer, do you want that to be owned by Murdoch? Uh, More so, that is, than it already is. A controlling ownership, uh, as opposed to now, where it's minority. Uh, Podcast at natelangson.com. Let's just take a fondle into our sack, Ian, our news sack. (laughs) We've had uh, a few emails this week. One came in minutes before we started recording the show. A very, very long email, which we'll get to next week. But thank you. You know who you are who sent that. But, uh, but in the meantime, we had this note that I thought was worth reading out from Mark. He says, Hi, Nate. I uh, was interested in your feature regarding Virgin Media using the Superhub as a Wi-Fi hotspot. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, Ian, I think, or maybe yes, last we did, week. Yeah about uh, Virgin Media routers being turned into public Wi-Fi spots for people. Uh, Mark continues, I got an email last week saying I was getting a speed boost up to 200 megabits per second and I would be sent a new Superhub to take advantage of the speed boost. I've not had the Superhub yet, but I did a speed test on my existing hub and got 140 megabits per second, then rebooted it, did another speed test and confirmed I now have 200 megabits per second. Mark says, obviously, the new Superhub isn't needed for the speed boost. Just wondering if it has anything to do with this hotspot feature they are introducing. Uh, 
it's quite possible, depending on where you live. And let me give you some more colour to this story as well. Um, I remember uh, having a conversation about this on Twitter a while ago, and I think it was Matt from Engadget replied and said that if you, um, when they send you a new hub, if you don't install it, they will just turn the old one off to make you. Um, so if you have any ideas about keeping the old one activated and not using the new one, think again. Well, I would say I would go one step further and I would say just keep using the current one because they're not going to just turn it off without at least getting in touch with you and well, saying <laughs> we're going to turn it no, off. No, that's that was not what Matt told me when he when he mentioned it on Twitter. He said they do just deactivate it. Mm. Yeah, so I mean, well, I, I, listeners may have had a similar experience and they may choose to write in about it. I would encourage them to do so. Yeah, so would I. Podcast at natelangson.com. Uh, I did look up a bit more in the week, actually, about this trial, and I found stories dating back to actually 2015 uh, about Virgin turning these things into into routers. I found one story on ispreview.co.uk uh, uh, in 2015 that quoted uh, a letter from Virgin Media that said they were going to switch on a separate internet connection on the Superhub. Uh, in order to do this but it got delayed and delayed and delayed and we did talk about the delay that last week but i didn't i didn't realize just i think how long this has actually been taking place and apparently at least at the at the time this story was written in 2015 some of these tests were actually limited geographically to a certain area so it wasn't it wasn't just an ad hoc kind of some people got the lucky bonus ball and got their Wi-Fi <laughs> turned into a public hotspot. It seemed to be focused in the Thames Valley area. So that's Reading, Bracknell, Basingstoke, uh, Newbury, Marlow, that whole region, yeah. uh, not far from London. So they were obviously trialing and have been trialing something for a while. And now it looks like this may obviously be pushed into 2017 before it gets turned on. But we'll continue to keep our eye on it. And hopefully you guys will continue to let us know if you're being talked to about it by Virgin. And you can let us know at that podcast at nateslangson.com. Ian, let's talk about Mario, shall oh, we? Oh, Mario. And we try and make this show different to other tech shows out there by focusing very exclusively on what concerns the UK. And we very regularly don't talk about the stuff that you guys have already heard on other podcasts. Um, This one we're making a little bit of an exception for, and that is that Mario, specifically Super Mario Run, the new iOS and ultimately Android game, due out uh, also on my birthday next week on the 15th of December um, is going to require an always on internet connection now this came to light it seems as a result of Shigeru Miyamoto who is obviously the creator of Mario sitting down with Mashable the website for a chat Miyamoto says we thought at one point it would be nice to have the world tour that's the story mode available standalone to be able to play without the connection Uh, But he goes on, Miyamoto, that is, to say that um, the security issues in the interviewer at Mashable says, you mean the risk of piracy, to which Miyamoto says, that's correct. Unlike our dedicated game services, the game is not releasing in a limited number of countries. We're launching in 150 countries, uh, and each of those countries has different network environments and things like that. So it was important for us to be able to have it secure for all users. Now, this is... uh, 
worrying. Let's just let's just say it's it's worrying. I've seen headlines and news stories um, since this came out saying things like Super Mario Run can't be played offline. Super Mario Run has a major problem. Uh, even as extreme as Nintendo is ruining Super Mario Run yeah. with its online requirement. I've seen comments on some sites like this is basically DRM for a premium product. Uh, this essentially kills my interest in the game. The only place I would really play this is on the subway. And to be fair. That's the reason that I think this is a UK-specific topic, because it was promised by Miyamoto on stage at Apple's keynote in September that you could play this on the, on the subway. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's, a real, it's a real challenge, because on the subway, at least in London, we don't have network connectivity all the way through the tunnels. So you ain't going to be playing Mario on there. You ain't going to be playing Mario on a plane. Simple as that. And that, to me, is such, such a shame. Well, you're absolutely right. Now, I want to I want to be quite clear here. There is a very little chance that I will not be buying this game. I, I, I will be buying the game. And so I'm, will I. I'm extremely disappointed by this, but I will still be buying the game, which obviously says nothing good about me. Um, well, I think it says a lot about the fact that this might not matter that much. It's just disappointing that in some of the places you would really want to play a game like this, i.e. commuting on a subway in a city, you might not get to now. Uh, yeah, um, also, purely, purely, let's just clarify, purely because of risks of pri- piracy. Well, but there, that, that's, that's what's key here. What's also stupid about this is that there is only a very minimal risk of piracy on iOS anyway, because... In order to, am I, am I right in thinking that in order to pirate a game, you would need to, um, you'd need to uh, root your phone, right, or jailbreak it? Um, so, and then you need to install a third-party app store. So, that is approximately naught percent of the iPhone-owning population. Right, oh, you'd be surprised, mate. There, really? there are a lot. Yeah, there are a lot of jailbroken phones out there. Like even, even now, even though it means that you can't use Apple Pay or things like that. Yes. Really? Oh, that surprises me. I mean, I. I don't know. I, I've i always been... So I used to like Android because it was flexible. You could do what you want with it. These days, I feel like I quite like the idea of picking up a phone and it working exactly how it was intended to work. And most Android is very good like that. And iPhone is very good like that. Um, so I kind of value the fact that, you know, things are simpler now. And and also, they're all, they're all a lot more flexible. Like, Apple has done a lot of the stuff that we wanted it to do to make its phones more customizable. I mean, you still can't change certain things, but I'm old. Who, who cares? Um so I don't understand that. But even even that aside, like, why not make it so that uh, to play it you have to authenticate once a day or something like that? Um, because the because that was one of the things that was criticised when the Xbox One yes was being announced. God, God, I mean, do you remember the the functionality that we had to we we lost because people were complaining about a console which was almost certainly going to be online anyway? I uh, remember it dearly because I was sitting at E3 at the time all this was being announced. Just before we go too off topic, I wanted to just talk about some of the reader reactions to this. I had a look. There was an interesting article on Polygon. They had a lot of comments on here, and I I went through some of the comments to find any that maybe talked about the UK. One of them I read, quote, so many articles on here dedicated to complaining. Fact is, I haven't had bad network connectivity in years. I don't ever go out of signal range on my mobile in the UK. So for me, it's no issue underground screw that i drive 
I advise you don't play Mario while driving. <laughs> yeah. uh, another person in Polygon's comments said, I'm also in the UK, and though I'm nearly always good for getting a signal that allows for phone calls and texting, my 4G connection is almost unavailable in the city centre and in a shopping centre near me, and there's no random black spots. Uh, and there's also random black spots in some places. And then another commenter, and this plays into exactly the, the last point that I wanted to make, but I thought we'd, we'd have this start from a, a reader comment. Uh, says this always on this day and is so outdated did the online requirement for pokemon go hinder its enjoyment is the online requirement to play clash of clans an issue people love to complain this is a smart business move for nintendo and Hmm. my thought was that's true i've never really been that bothered by the lack of network connectivity requirements for pokemon well that you say that but it is kind of annoying because often it will i mean like the gps thing it's it pokemon goes super super sensitive um and it if you especially early on in the game it was very glitchy if there was even a sort of like a hint of something being weird about the network um I I would hope that with a game that doesn't absolutely rely on being online, like Mario won't for the campaign, it would just be you need to be online every few minutes or something like that, rather than as soon as it detects no internet connection, it shuts the game down. But we won't know until it launches, will we? That's true. I will have to check back next week and see how how this is being implemented. But it wouldn't surprise me, and, and certainly I'm not the only person to observe this, if if it is a problem, whether they will introduce an offline mode at a later date. I because would certainly so. that has happened before. And the most notable example I can think was with SimCity's relaunch back in, <laughs> uh, whenever that was, about 2012, 2013. SimCity was, la- was relaunched. It was a reboot. Uh, it was a PC game. And there were huge criticisms around the game being, you know, allowing only for smaller cities and for being restrictive. But it was also a single player game that inexplicably required an always on internet connection. And it really frustrated a lot of people who didn't want to have to be online to play a single player game. And ultimately, they did backpedal and, uh, and, and they allowed it to be played offline. And it was a, it was, it was a challenging thing for them to do, I think, because they, they baked onlineness if you like <laughs> in uh, into the code itself and so had to essentially rewrite huge parts of the game to support it, yeah, it was very but for a game form. like mario you know uh, until we've been able to play this and seen how valuable the multiplayer aspects are i can still imagine that there'll be a lot of people who don't care about the multiplayer scoring side of things and just want to be able to play it on a long on a plane ride, uh, which I can imagine myself being one of those. Key here, obviously, is for you to let us know your thoughts over the next week because the the game is coming out on Thursday, this coming week that this show goes out. So you'll have some time to get the game, play the game, and then think, "Ooh, I'm enjoying this," or "Ooh, this sucks." Uh, I'd better tell Nate and Ian my opinion so they can talk about it on Sunday. Please do that. Podcast at natelangson.com. Let's check in with Tom Merritt of Daily Tech News Show and find out what's been going on globally over the last week. Thanks, Nate. This week we started on Monday talking with Veronica Belmont about whether the lines between your online and offline lives even exist anymore. And the conversation was based on a column by Ars Technica's Annalie Newitz. So Friday, Justin Robert Young and I brought Annalie on to talk about some of our listeners' reactions. We also discussed the implications of Windows 10 running on ARM with an emulator, got Patrick Beja's picks for video games to add to your shopping list, 
and explained what the heck a blockchain is. You must listen to that one. All that and more at DailyTechNewsShow.com. Well, that just leaves us with time to remind you, please complete our listener survey. Cannot express just how important that is to us. The link to that survey is in the MP3 of this episode and is also at techpodcast.uk. That's our homepage in the show notes there for this episode and last week's episode. Also, do follow us on Twitter at TextMessagePod if you want to keep up to date with UK tech news throughout the week. And unless there's anything else, Ian, I think we'll see everybody in a week's time. We certainly will. Jolly good. How marvellous. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us.